Let's have prayer together and we'll begin. Gracious Father, we thank you for your many blessings to us. And as we once again study your word, we pray for the infilling of your Holy Spirit. Guide us, give us wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. First off, the gospel in Ruth. Why do I call it the gospel in Ruth? Because there are different types of prophecy. We find that there's literal prophecy. That means if I say, John, when you go outside, there's going to be a brick fall off the, the roof and hit you in the head. He goes outside and bing. Okay, that's literal prophecy. It actually came true that way. There's uh, another kind of prophecy, which is apocalyptic prophecy. That's like Daniel, Revelation, Ezekiel, and so forth, where you have all these strange animals and monsters and so forth. And then there, there is a narrative type of prophecy that you don't hear much about. I like to call the book of Ruth the gospel in Ruth because it has, even though it was real events with real people, yet it is filled with gospel implications all the way through. And as we get into the customs, as we get into the uh, events and so forth of the book of Ruth, I think you'll be surprised to see that in reality, their lives and the way they lived it were actually, had prophetic overtones, okay? So, first question, the book of Ruth itself, where is it located? It's located behind Judges and before 1 Samuel. There's a reason for it. For a long time, people considered the book of Ruth to be a part of Judges because the events that we're talking about in this book took place during the time of the Judges. How do we know that? It says so right in the book itself. And who was the author of it? Well, it was written down, obviously, after these people were dead. How do we know that it was written quite a while afterwards, because in the book itself, it tells, uh, toward the end, it talks about uh, Solomon, it ta- not Solomon, Solomon, and it, he was the husband of Rahab. Rahab was at Jericho. Jericho was, when the children of Israel first came into the promised land, that was their prime target, their first target to go down. So we're talking about the time thereafter while she was still alive. It also mentions David. And David, it wasn't until after the time of Samuel that David becomes king. And so it must have been after Samuel or by Samuel that the book was written. There are different theories as to who wrote it. Some say Daniel, some some have all kinds of theories. But generally speaking, it's considered that Samuel is the one who wrote it. Now, the story itself is very interesting. It uh, probably took place, as it shows in some of the things you have there, about 1322 B.C., That's where it opens, 1322 B.C. There are different calculations. 
I've seen some that put it up as far as 1000 B.C. Some put it even later than 1322. But generally, it seems to be a, that's a reasonable date for it, for it to be. As we look at the book itself, you can look through this material. It'll save me a lot of time uh, just giving you the handout on it. But anyway, the political conditions at the time, I think we'll touch on that as we get into the book itself. So why don't you take your Bibles, and I hope you all have your Bibles, turn to the book of Ruth, and here we'll see how it opens. Around this time, 1322, the judge who was ruling uh, Israel at the time, there was no king. It'll bring that out. There was no king at the time. So that had to be before uh, the first king, Saul, was uh, elected. We find that during this time, the judge may have been Ibsen. Ibsen is mentioned as the judge who followed Gideon. Some people try to put the scene back in the time of Gideon. Some try to put it in the time of Samson. But generally, it seems to be about the time of Ibsen that this takes place. So we're talking about 1322 B.C. What is the book about? The book itself is a search for rest. It's a search for security. I know it's a nice love story. It's, it has many uh, moral implications in it. And we find that oftentimes we dwell on the relationship between Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And that's very important. But there are other implications in it, too, as we will find out. Now, Ruth is connected with the parable of the vineyard that's found in Isaiah 5.1. And it's also connected to Jeremiah 2.21 and Hosea 10.1. They talk about very similar themes. Now, Ruth, for Ruth, by Naomi, is found under the wings of Boaz. That security is under the wings of Boaz. And that was a favorite theme of David, by the way. And Boaz would not rest until that redemption was complete. And we'll see that as we go on. In Ruth 1.1, it says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. See? That tells us the time period. That's why it's connected to judges. They didn't know where to put it within judges, so they tacked it at the end of judges. That there was a famine in the land. Now, why was there a famine in the land? First off, there shouldn't have been. Uh, God said that he would protect his people. If they were faithful, he would not let the droughts come upon them, and if the droughts did, he would provide for them. He would also ward off their enemies if they were faithful to him. The very fact that there's a famine in the land tells us something. What do you think it tells us? That maybe they weren't as faithful as they should have been. And if it's in the time of Ibsen, even in the time of Gideon, it was probably the Philistines who were coming in and attacking them. And as a result, this could have uh, been the reason why there was a famine, because they were destroying their crops. It could have been because of the weather. It could have been because of warfare. 
It could have been because of a number of things. All it tells us is that there was a famine, and there are a number of famines that are mentioned in the scriptures. And it says, And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. All right, first off, there was a certain man. This is where the story actually begins. He was from Bethlehem, Judah. Now, Bethlehem was the, the place where David later on would be born. It's also the place where what? Jesus would be born, right? In the land of Judah. Now, why did they say Bethlehem, Judah? Because, how many have ever been to Portland, Oregon? Okay. How many have been to Portland, Maine? You see. How many have been to Portland, Michigan? There are a number of Portlands, right? There was a Bethlehem in Judah, and there was also a Bethlehem in Zebulun. So this is the reason why they give the city and the tribe in which it was located. Now, they went to sojourn in the land of Moab. Of all places, why Moab? See, Jerusalem and Israel is down here, but Moab is in a mountainous area. And they, the famine seems to have hit Israel, but it probably wasn't as bad in Moab. Now, the Moabites were a very interesting people because they had uh, as their ancestor whom? Anybody remember your Bible? Who was the ancestor of the Moabites? Somebody said it. I heard it. It was Lot. Lot, remember, after his wife turned to a pillar of salt, he went to stay in a cave. And there he had, with his two daughters, he had an incestuous relationship. One of the children that was born to uh, one of his daughters was Ammon. The other was Moab. So Lot was both the father and the grandfather of Ammon and Moab. And because of this, the Moabites were kind of looked down upon as being immoral. And so we find that here, this man takes his wife and he moves with his two sons to the land of Moab. They were probably young. They were probably just teenagers. As a matter of fact, they might have been pre-teenagers before they, they went there because they were there for 10 years. Now let's look back a little bit. It says the judges ruled. This was probably by Samuel because now the time of the judges is past. And it takes place in the time of judges. Now here it says probably during the life of Eli or after Rahab's time. So it might have taken place somewhere in there. Famine, I mentioned, it could have been a plague that brought that about. But there was not only a a physical famine, there was also a spiritual famine at the time. And if you want more on Moab... Uh, the book, Biblical Things Not Generally Known, it explains more about the Moabites there. Now, in Ruth 2, it says, 
and the name of the man was Elimelech. Now, Elimelech, it's, uh, it's interesting what these names mean. You see, Elimelech means my God is king. My God is king. And if Elimelech's God is king, what's he doing over the land of the heathen? He should have been back in his own country with his own people. And it says, and the name of his wife was Naomi. Now the name Naomi in Hebrew means my pleasantness or happiness. Well, she went out happy, but she doesn't come back very happy. She comes back quite sad. And so she has to change her name. Now you've got to remember that in the Bible, that if your character changes, your name changes. Remember, Jacob was the deceiver. But when he stopped deceiving, he became Israel, which is a prince with God, right? And so we find that these names uh, oftentimes are descriptions. Now, they had two boys, two sons, Malin and Kylian. I used to pronounce it Chilean, but my wife corrected me. It's Kylian. And which is consistent with uh, the Hebrew too. Malin and Kylian. Now these two young men, their names are quite descriptive too. Because not only did it describe them, but perhaps we might even be able to get a little insight into the conditions uh, of the land. You see, Malin means sickly. How would you like to name your kid sickly? David, you have two sons. How would you like to name one of them Sickly? And the other one, the other's name is Pining. What's it mean to pine over something? You kind of mope around and uh, you're sad. This is what their names meant. Yearning, okay. Uh, So we find here that Malin meant sickly. And we find that uh, Kylian meant pining. Now it says here that they were Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. Now, Ephrath was the old name for Bethlehem. Okay? And so it also helps to place us a little bit in time where that name was still being used fairly uh, frequently. And they came into the country of Moab, and they continued there. They lived there. And as I just mentioned to you, the names, in case you didn't get to jot them down, it, uh, these names may actually be describing the spiritual condition of Israel as well. Now, I've got to be careful. I don't want to get into allegorizing too much on this. But yet, these things have spiritual implications, which we'll see. Now, Ephratha, as I mentioned, was the older name for Bethlehem. Now, it was called Bethlehem because Bethlehem meant the house of bread. Well, if it's the house of bread, how comes there's a famine? There shouldn't have been a famine in the house of bread. It was an agricultural area. That's where they... They had a lot of crops growing. Now, they were natives of this town, as we discovered. And I mentioned about Judah. 
You can look in Joshua 19.5 and you'll see that there's another Bethlehem mentioned there. Okay? Now, they went to Moab. I already discussed that. Uh, some of the background. Moab actually was broken up into three districts according to Jeremiah 48.9. It had three different uh, districts to it. Moab, it mentioned, would become desolate. And intermarriage was against the law. It was a sin. And because of this, here you have a man whose name meant God is my king. He is going to a foreign land, and there his boys intermarry with the people of Moab. So this question of intermarriage will come into play. Is it any wonder why Naomi is hesitant about bringing these girls back? Because they didn't think they would be accepted as well in, in her own native land. And so we find in verse 3, And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. He never went back home. He died in Moab. And she was left, she and her two sons. Now, in those days, they, of course, didn't have social security and so forth. If you had land, you know, you might be able to make something uh, live on that. But women didn't inherit the land. It passed on to the male heir. And it was the custom that it was the responsibility of the oldest son, in particular, to take care of his mother, you see or else you wouldn't have any, any provisions. This is brought out also in the New Testament. Remember when Jesus was on the cross? John and his mother, Mary, come to the foot of the cross, and Jesus said to Mary, Mother, there's your son, talking to John. And then, John, this is your mother. Now, the thing is, Jesus had other brothers, didn't, didn't he? He had sisters, too. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us who some of his brothers were. There was Joseph, there was Simeon, there was James, and there was Jude. Why didn't he entrust Mary to them? All right, that's right. Because they were from a different mother. Apparently, Joseph had been married and apparently his wife had died, and Jesus was the only one from Mary. Therefore, it became his responsibility, not theirs, to take care of Mary. So Mary is um, turned over to one that Jesus had delegated. And so we see some of these customs beginning to uh, come into play here. But here, both of her sons had died. She's in a strange land. Who's going to take care of her? There's not much for her. So she decides, I'm going to go back home. Look at verse 4. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, not Oprah. That's, that's a different channel. It's Orpah. And the name of the other is Ruth. And they dwelt there about 10 years. So they're living 10 years in Moab. So if that's the case, even if they went there in 1322, 10 years later, this coming back 
had to take place around 1312. Okay, 10 years. And what does the name Oprah, uh, oh, excuse me, I got myself into that. Orpah, what does the name Orpah mean? In the Hebrew tongue, there are several words it could uh, mean. First off, it meant forelock. Possibly, it means fawn or hind. Uh, a fawn has very soft, brownish skin. We find that forelock meant she probably had nice curl, nice head of hair. It's some say that, and, or hind and fawn, either one, um, some say that it also could mean that she was um, stubborn. It can mean stubbornness, too. But that doesn't seem to fit into the, uh, the scenery in this story. The Arabic root of this word meant ornamented richly with hair. So she probably had a good crop of hair on her. And from what the description is that's given... She was probably a very nice-looking lady. The other one, Ruth, maybe she didn't have the beauty that uh, Orpah had, but she had something else. She had a character that was attractive. And Ruth means to associate with or a friendly or friendship. This is the meaning of the word. So she was a very friendly person, and her mother-in-law was a happy person. That must have made quite a nice, happy home. Look at verse 5. And Malin and Kylian died also, both of them, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. In plain words, she lost all three men. Not only is she a widow, but her two daughters-in-law are now widows, and they were fairly young. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. So apparently things were picking up back home. And whatever the famine was, it was starting to lift. But still, 10 years is a lot of, lot of time to have a famine. But things were beginning to pick up now. And so she starts heading back home. Notice the word Lord is in capital letters. When you see it in capital letters, it means Yahweh. Okay? It means the self-existent, uh, the self-sufficient God. And so... Apparently, God was beginning to bless the people again. Well, if that's the case, then maybe they, if they had slipped away into apostasy, maybe they were starting to repent of that apostasy. And that also is an, uh, another problem in trying to date them. When did this all take place? You have to fit it in between the apostasies and the repentances. So, Lord in capitals is Yahweh. With vowels, see, you really can't pronounce the name Yahweh. I know a lot of people like to make a, a big deal out of the name. This is very, um, this is one of God's most sacred names. He has many names. But this is one of his most sacred names, if not the most sacred. Because he is the self-sufficient, self-existent one. He's the only one of his kind. 
and he's above and beyond time. He is called the I am. Not the I was or the I will be, the I am, which means he's above time, you see. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. I am the one who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. So Jesus actually is claiming that he is Yahweh. Now, Yahweh can be used in connection with the Father and the Son. But you notice it's all consonants. Now, to try to pronounce that with no vowels, it'd be something like, Yahweh. No. I can't pronounce the YH. Yahweh, I guess. I'm still putting in vowels, you see. So, the, the Jewish people consider this name so sacred that they would not pronounce it. They would either put G-D or, or something else. Sometimes they just leave it out, and you just knew what should be in there. But because they didn't pronounce it, they had forgotten how it was pronounced. So later on, when the Mesorites come along, they take the word Adonai, because don't forget in Genesis 2, it says the Lord God. So what they did was they took the vowels out of Adonai, which is Lord, and they put those vowels between the consonants in Yahweh, and they got Yahovah. Well, there's the V and the W are the same thing. So that becomes Yahovah. And since, you know, some languages don't have a J for the Y, we have a J. So the Y became a J, and it becomes Jehovah. You see how the word evolved. Anyway, it says in verse 7, Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. So all three of them were going to go. And the closer they got to the border, the more worried Naomi became. And Naomi said unto her, her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to your mother's house. Now notice it didn't say to your father's house because many of these people were polygamists and the father may have been with some other woman. So go to your mother's house. But her mother's house in Moab the uh, both mothers and fathers, they were wrapped up in paganism, they were wrapped up in immorality and so forth. It wasn't the greatest environment for them. It seems strange that she would send them back to that kind of an environment. But yet, why did she do it? She did it because she knew that they were going to have a hard time. There was a, a commandment in the scriptures that said that a Moabite could not become a part of Israel until after 10 generations. So this is another way. It helps us to date this thing because that curse that was put on the Moabites was back in the time of Balaam because the Moabites under the time of Balaam were fighting against Israel. And that's when that curse was put upon them. So you have to calculate how many generations there were, and I did that. I sat down and calculated, and I figured that they were well within the time period 
that after 10 generations, then a Moabite could become a part of Israel. And so here, it says that, um, return each of you to your mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. You were very kind and loving to my family, to my sons, to my husband, and you've done well with me. She wanted to give them a life because here again, they were very young. They had a whole life in front of them and she didn't want to see their life miserable. And it was unlikely they were going to find a husband down in Judah. And so verse 9, the Lord grant that ye may find rest. Now that's important. Did you catch that word? That you might find rest. That's strange that that's in there. Each of you in the house of her husband. Hmm. Then uh, she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. They all wailed because they didn't want to part. Now it's interesting, the word for rest here, the word rest here is not Shabbat. It's not Sabbath. That's not what she's talking about. She uses a different word for rest. And notice it's connected with the house of a husband. In plain words, she's saying, you girls go back home and get married. That's what she's saying. We find that the word she uses, menucha, we get the name Noah or Noach comes from it. It means to settle down, to remain. And the Noah of Ark fame, that's what his name meant. He was the one that built the boat that would bring them safety, security. Those who remained would find security until they could settle down, you see. And that ark, by the way, represented Jesus. Samuel Cox writes quite a bit about the history of this word. I'm just, it says, in marrying them, their sons had sinned against the Hebrew law. That sin was not likely to be repeated by Israelites living in their own country. They may have married outside the church when they were living among the heathen, but while they're in Israel, it's unlikely that any of the Israelite men would marry them. And so she knew this. Verse 10. And they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. And Naomi was getting kind of persistent here. And Naomi says in verse 11, Turn again, my daughters. Why will ye go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Now, she's talking here about the Leverite marriages. In plain words, if a man dies and he has no children, his brother is to marry that woman and raise up children, a child, for him and inherit his land. And the very fact that Naomi is saying this, she is saying, well, uh, you're going to hang around? till I have a husband and I have a child, and then you're going to hang around until he grows old enough? It implies also that these two daughters-in-law had no children at this point. 
So how long they had been married, we don't know. Look at verse 12. Turn again, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. I'm too old to get married again. If I say so, I have hope. If I should have a husband even tonight and should bear sons, would you tarry for them till they were grown? You're not going to hang around. And who would take care of you if, if that were the case? Would you stay for them uh, from having husbands? In plain words, are you going to wait for them or are you going to be chasing around with other men while you're waiting for them to grow up? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. So she's saying it's not only their problem, but it's hers too. Now, I want you to catch something here. Naomi is cut off with no hopes of redemption. You catch that? She's a Jew. She's cut off with no hopes of redemption. Her only hope is in a Gentile. Isn't that interesting? But then again, how's that going to work? The law doesn't allow for it. In addition to that, too, we find that God has to intervene and provide a redeemer. Did you ever hear this theme before? Let's take and look back in time. Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. Well, they thought for sure Cain was going to be the Messiah. That's talked about in Genesis 3.15. And they thought for sure he was the one that was going to crush the serpent and restore everything. But he didn't turn out too well. And then they had another son who was a good, good young man. But he apparently had no children. He may have been married, he may not, you see. But he had no children. And now he's dead, and his brother killed him, and he had to flee. So what does that leave Adam and Eve? They are cut off with no heir, with no seed for the Messiah to come through. And so all they had was a promise. All they had was Genesis 3.15 to cling to. And God said, I'm going to give you a seed and the Messiah will come through him. And they're saying, yeah, but one's dead and you're certainly not going to, he's not going to come through Cain. We're cut off. We have no salvation. God's people were cut off. He probably had to wait a long time. How long, we don't know. But they had to cling to that promise by faith that God would provide a seed. And then one day, all of a sudden, was born a little boy by the name of Seth. And Seth means put. You see, Abel means a vapor. It actually means nothing. You know, it's nothing. Poof, he's gone. Cain means begotten or possession. Well, all your possessions won't save you. And as good a guy as Abel was, poof, he's gone. What good is he in your salvation? Your salvation was because you trusted in God's word. God 
intervenes and puts Seth there. And you're all descended from Seth, you see. But if it weren't for Seth, the human race would have been cut off. Here we find that Naomi is cut off. Naomi the Jew. Jewess. And not only that, but here's Ruth, the Gentile. She's cut off too. She couldn't really make it very well back on her in her own uh, country after having married an Israelite because there was tension between them. And so it says that one of them, Orpah, she kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth cleaved to her. In plain words, Orpah was sensible. She listened to reason. She listened to what Naomi said, and it made sense. And she says, look, girl, if you stick with me, you have no future. The best thing for you to do is go back to your own country and marry people that you're a part of. And so she does. And notice she kisses her mother goodbye, her mother-in-law. Isn't it interesting that Judas kissed Jesus goodbye just before he left him, you see. And so here she goes back to her people, and we never hear of Orpah again. We don't know what happened to her. But instead, we find that Ruth stays with her. Now, how many part with Christ at this crossway, like Orpah? They go a furlong or two with Christ till he goes to take them off from their worldly hopes. And he bids them prepare for hardships. And then they fairly kiss and leave him. That's a note found in the Amplified Bible. Amplified Bible has a lot of neat little notes tucked in it. And then in verse 15 it says, And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone unto her people and unto her gods. Notice that. She went back to her old religion. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. Strange that she's telling Ruth, go back home to your gods. You see, Ruth was not only adopting her mother-in-law, she was adopting her mother-in-law's God. She was becoming a part of Israel. She was no longer identifying with the Moabites. She's now identifying with the Israelites, even though she hadn't even stepped across the border yet. Now, in Moab, what was the God that Orpah went back to? They had a bunch of gods, but the chief god that they had was Chumash. Chumash was a very unpleasant god, if you look in Numbers 21, 29. The god Moloch and Chumash were overlapped. When it talks about Moloch, it talks about him being a, a metal god with his arms stretched out. And they would heat a fire in it. And they would take a little newborn baby and place it in his arms to see whether or not he accepted it. And if he didn't, the baby would drop down into the fire pit. That's the kind of God that the Moabites were worshiping. And so we find that this is what Orpah was going back to. And Ruth says, no, man, I don't want that. 
Even if I don't have a husband, even if I don't have kids, I'm not going to go back to that. I'm going to go with the God of Israel. Verse 16, And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to turn from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? That she had this kind of a relationship. She found God in the home of Naomi. Not only that, but she learned to love the God of Israel. I often think, oftentimes when our sons or daughters marry somebody we don't approve of, maybe they marry outside the faith. It's very easy to say, well, she's, she doesn't cook as good as your mother does. Or don't bring her home here. You know, there's strife and tension. But not so with Naomi. She connected. And because she showed love toward this girl, she won her over. You know, I wonder how many mothers-in-law if they were to change their attitudes, could really uh, have a positive effect on winning their, their children's partner that way. And so we find here that there's a good example given. Now, Ruth is a prophecy. Notice this. This is from the Amplified Bible, the Amplified Old Testament. In the note on chapter 1, verse 14 and 16, it says, Ruth is a prophecy than which none could be more beautiful and engaging, of the entrance of the heathen world into the kingdom of God. She comes forth out of Moab, an idolatrous people, full of wantonness and sin, and is herself so tender and pure, in a land where desolate sensuality formed one of the elements of idol worship. A woman appears as wife and daughter, chaste as the rose in spring, and unpassed in these relations by any other human character in Holy Writ. Ruth's confession of God and his people originated in the home of her married life. It sprang from the love with which she had permitted to embrace Israelites. The conduct of one Israelitish woman, Naomi, in a foreign land, was able to call forth a love and a confession of God, like that of Ruth. Ruth loves a woman and is thereby led to the God whom that woman confesses. You can find that in Lang's commentary. Notice also about God. This is from Strong's Concordance. It mentions in verses 1, 16, and 2, 12, It says that God is Elohim. It is the gods in the ordinary sense, but specifically used in the plural, thus especially with the article, of the supreme God. In the Old Testament, Genesis 1, it mentions that Elohim is the one who made the heavens and the earth. It's the plural sense. It's the Godhead working together created it. Occasionally, it applies by the way of deference to magistrates. A magistrate could be called an Elohim. 
This is the reason why it mentioned in the scriptures that the judges were gods. Jesus referred to that, you see. Why? Because they were making judgments. And an Elohim is one who makes judgments. And sometimes, as a superlative, and it can mean angels or judges or mighty. So sometimes when it talks about mighty beings, sometimes it's used in reference to angels. Notice in one seventeen it says, Where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. So you can see she was going to take care of her mother-in-law until one of them died. Then she'd plan beyond that. Look at 18. When she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. Now that didn't mean she snubbed her. What it means, she says, okay, girl, if you're going to come, no sense debating it, let's go. Okay, so Naomi, she gives in to Ruth because she knew that Ruth was going to go with her. So they two went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them. And they said, is this Naomi? Of course, they knew who she was, but they were surprised after not seeing her for 10 years. I mean, she goes back to her relatives. Naomi, is that you? Well, for one thing, her appearance apparently has changed because she's been through a lot. Look at verse 20. And she said unto them, call me not Naomi, which means happiness, remember? Don't call me happy, but call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Because I've had some pretty bitter experiences. For the Almighty, that's the El Shaddai. God Almighty is El Shaddai. The Shaddai hath dealt very bitterly with me. Now notice she's saying God brought this to pass. Well, I don't think it was God's will that her husband and children die. But yet, God takes the blame for everything. And in, she couldn't see what was going on. All she could say is, God, why'd you allow this to happen? So she was kind of bitter that she had lost her family. She says, you call me instead. Call me Mara. Mara means sorrow or bitter. And so verse 21, I went out full. I went out happy. I had my family. That's all that mattered. It didn't matter about the crops. I had my family. And the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Now, isn't that interesting? The famine was in the land, but the fullness was in Naomi. Now, when she comes back, the food is in the land, but the emptiness is in Naomi. You see, kind of a crisscross taking place here. Why then call me Naomi, seeing that the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? Verse 22. So she sounds rather depressed, doesn't she? And so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of uh, Moab. And they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of the barley harvest. That's significant. 
because the barley harvest is the key for what's going to take place next. So we find Naomi goes out full, comes back empty. But the Lord doesn't leave her there. 